Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hey, everybody. Welcome back and Happy New Year for 2019. Now, I know I've already said Happy New Year at the end of the last podcast that we posted this week, but I'm still kind of in party mood because in the <laughs> things are still just there's so many exciting things still going on even right now in early January of uh, 2019. So, I mean, we've just had uh, OSIRIS-REx in orbit around an asteroid Bennu. We've just had uh, New Horizons fly by the most distant object in our solar system, uh, Ultima Thule, and so and even just tonight we have a we have things like a meteor shower to look forward to. There's a but uh, there's a solar, a partial solar eclipse coming up on Sunday. So many things. So I'm very excited uh, to welcome you into 2019. And with me, at, I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. And with me is Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes. Hi, Dustin. Hey, Tony. Happy New Year. It's uh, 2019 already. It's it's kind of hard to believe. It's been a blur. I mean, 2018 was was a blur. And now it's like, you know, 20, 2019 is starting so fast. I, I can't even keep my bearings here. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. I've been telling people that I've been telling them that for me, because there's just so much going on industry wide and just, you know, uh, space news and just all of it. There's there's so much going on right now that for me, this year is going to be more of an 18 slash 19 all just kind of rolled into one because it doesn't feel like there's really, there's no break between the two. It's just uh, it's just there's too much momentum to say, yeah, we're in something new now. No, we're just continuing on with uh, with so much going on. I know. Well, I've been working with you for a few months now, and I've noticed that where you everything is just there's never really much breathing room. I don't get the sense on your on your side of the mic because it's like you're always involved in something new. You're always getting involved in really cool and exciting projects. So I can easily imagine that. Uh, so, yeah, it's well, been you've got it, a, a lot of people under the same roof here that are all absolutely addicted and fascinated to space. Right. And uh, it's it's one of those things where <laughs> you've got a hundred things you want to do and the time to do five. And so everybody's scrambling all the time to see, can we squeeze one more thing in? Can we find a way to get this one done? And so, yeah, it's, it's a blur, but it's the most fun blur in the world. Yeah. It's, it's really crazy. So we're going to, this for, for this particular podcast, it's just me and Dustin. We're going to talk about a few things that interest us. We're going to be talking about the things in 2018 that we thought were cool. And we're going to look forward to some things in 2019. So we're kind of going to break this up a little bit into what we're calling science news. And then we're going to talk about some, some amateur astronomy news that would be interested, be interesting to people in our hobby. And then there'll be some uh, industry and OPT news. So we're going to kind of split the podcast up into those kinds of segments for today, uh, just to kind of, I don't know. We just we just want to share a lot of stuff that we thought was cool. So that's what we're that's how we're going to break this down. And I guess for let's start with science news. Um, as I mentioned just very briefly, I rattled off a bunch of stuff that happened at the top of the podcast. But I mean, 
you know, 2018 has had a lot of really cool science-related things uh, that have happened. Because I tend to have an emphasis on professional astronomy and science outreach, I keep track of a lot of this stuff. And I guess for me, the biggest, uh, some of the biggest events that happened in 2018 were, well, first of all, it was the SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch. That happened back in February. I live in Florida, so I was able to go, uh, and it was an amazing experience. And I was able to compare that experience with what it would have been like for watching a Saturn V rocket go off, because I did watch the Apollo 17 launch when I was a child. Yes, I am that old. And it was pretty cool. I really, it was an amazing experience. And then another big thing for me was the TESS, TESS mission, the TESS first light. Uh, uh, TESS stands for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And it saw its first light in August. And what it's going to do is look for Earth-sized planets in our galaxy. And that's very important. I think that's really cool. And then another big thing I thought was neat was the Parker Solar Probe went up in June. That is the, it is actually flying basically into the sun. It's getting so close to the sun that it's actually mm -hmm. flying into the upper atmosphere. And then, uh, you know, those, so those are some of the big things in 2018 that I found pretty cool. Let's, let me, let me stop you for a second because I didn't realize that you saw the Falcon heavy launch. Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to the, so what happened was they, they charged like $200 for, uh, a, a special VIP ticket. You could have an event. Uh, and so I, I paid the money and I went down there and they had people like Bill Nye was there giving speeches and just, just thousands of people were there. You got really good view of the launch and, uh, we you know, got tours of, of various facilities before the launch. So yeah, it was pretty cool. It was really amazing. You know, it's funny here, you, they're neighbors of ours, uh, SpaceX is, and we're pretty close with, uh, several of their employees there. And from time to time, the staff will go and tour SpaceX. And so you get to see, you know, just the mass production of rockets under the roof there. It's, it's really something to see. It's not at all what I expected going for the first time where you just see all these rocket engines everywhere. You're walking right by them. And then just the entire thing being produced there. It's, it's unbelievable to watch. But the, the first time I was there, I hadn't even heard of the Falcon Heavy and it was before they were really uh, making a lot of news with it, but they were working on it. And so I got to see it before I really even knew what it was. And the employee there was nice enough to point it out and say, hey, this is going to be a big deal. But, um, you know, kind of explained what it was and how they were going to strap these three together and launch this massive thing into space. But uh, it was just so much bigger than I ever could have imagined. You know, you see it on TV and it's one thing, but when you see it in person, which I'd imagine you probably had the same experience watching that thing fly is just on a completely different level. Yeah. There's something, you know, the, the normal Falcon launches are pretty cool, but, um, I mean, they're nice, but they're very, they're very, uh, if you didn't look at the launch pad, you, you would, not know that it's going off right because where you have to stand you're about two or three miles away and uh you look at these things and you won't hear them you know at all and so when a when a normal falcon 9 uh, launch goes off that they've been doing the ones where they return the boosters and, st and stuff like that if you're not looking right at it you'd never know that it was launching but this there was no question when the falcon heavy went off you knew something was going on uh, there was a big deep rumble in the ground and we were still a couple of miles away we could still feel that. And uh, it was really very reminiscent of the Saturn V, although the Saturn V was a slightly more powerful rocket. It, this one was no, this one, this one was no slouch. <laughs> it did all right for itself. So it was pretty impressive. 
you were three miles away and it was still shaking the ground? Oh yeah, you could feel it. You could feel it in the ground. Uh, it was yeah, <laughs> it's really neat. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, mm-hmm. Now this year, what uh, what SpaceX is doing is they're going to be testing their 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 launch vehicle, their human launch vehicle. Finally, it's been delayed for about four years now, but they're finally going to be launching that hopefully this year to test it. They won't be having people on it, but NASA needs to see that this stuff's going to work before they're going to let people use it. And so that's happening hopefully this year as well. I'm not sure exactly when, but that's something to look forward to. So that'll be another impressive launch. Yeah. I've, I've only ever seen the Falcon nine and I, you know, in person at least launch. And, uh, I was, I was blown away by that. I mean, it still looks like a skyscraper launching into space. And so, um, I don't know how far away we were exactly, but, um, it was, it was extremely impressive. So I, I can't imagine seeing three of those things strapped together going up at the same time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It really was. So that was a highlight for my year, uh, way back in February, uh, to go do that. So I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, but I have to say another big one was tests. I mean, people are kind of, you know, giving tests a hard time, uh, mm-hmm. because that it, the orbit that it's in around the earth, it's in this very strange orbit around the earth. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, it only looks at certain sections of the sky for, just a couple of months and then it moves on to another sector and people are saying, well, that's not really going to be enough time to find many exoplanets, but it is, I mean, it's going to give candidate, uh, light curves. And so I actually think a lot of data is going to come from that instrument. So that's another thing I'm very excited about for, uh, the coming next couple of years is the, the potential for exoplanet, uh, discoveries that, that Tess is going to give us. I think that's pretty cool. So, I mean, you know, I said this during the Ultima Thule uh, live stream that we just finished doing a couple of days ago, but when New Horizons flew by Ultima Thule, uh, you know, it, it did, it, this was the, that was the furthest flyby we had ever done in the history of, of human spaceflight. But NASA has this tendency to get the most bang for its buck that I've ever seen as far as when you pay for a mission you get a lot more for your money. In the case of New Horizons, you paid for a, a Pluto flyby. That's what we paid for as taxpayers. What we got was a Pluto flyby. We also got an Ultima Thule KBO object flyby, and we might get another flyby if they get an extended an extended mission from, from that uh, spacecraft. And with, uh, with Kepler, for example, with Kepler, what we paid for was five years of staring at the constellation Cygnus to look at for Earth-sized exoplanets. What we got was nine years of operation. We got five years of the original mission plus another four years where it was able to look at uh, stars and, and planets in the, in the plane of the ecliptic. So we got almost twice as much for our money with things like Kepler. So people say a lot about NASA. NASA does have its problems. But one thing it does do when it can is is squeeze every bit of science it can out of all of its missions. I think it's really good at doing that. I think so too. And you mentioned OSIRIS-REx. I want you to kind of explain to me, it's a uh, sample gathering mission, right? From an, from an asteroid. Is that, is that OSIRIS-REx? Yeah. So much just happened like in this last week. So yeah. So OSIRIS-REx is this space probe. It's going to the asteroid belt and it, and it, it just entered orbit on New Year's Eve with uh, around this asteroid named Bennu. And it's the smallest thing that we've ever orbited. Orbiting small things is kind of hard because they don't have a big gravitational pull. 
But then it's going to do something really extraordinary. After it spends a couple of years flying around the asteroid and mapping its surface completely, then it's going to change its orbit in such a way that it slowly gets closer and closer to the asteroid. It will extend an arm out and then it will touch for five seconds the asteroid itself, during which time it's going to release a puff of hydrogen gas, which will kick up some dust, fly it into a collection tube, the, and then it will grab it and then retract the arm and then fly home. And so what are, what are they... Like, what is NASA expecting to find with this sample? Is it more of a just, we don't know, let's see what's there? Or is it is there some expectation? I don't know, really. I think, um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I find a lot of these rock um, missions kind of boring because I don't care about geology as much as, as a lot of people do. I don't, um, I'm, that's why I'm not, a, that's why I don't really get much into planetary science as much as a lot of people do. Like, you know, Emily Lockdewall and those guys, they love geology. Mm-hmm planetary geology but for me it's not it's not so exciting i think what they you know what they're going to learn is what it's made of of course and uh what maybe get some clues as to what kinds of things are hanging around in the asteroid belt and uh, that kind of knowledge so i think it's pretty important and that's supposed to take a long isn't it 2022 or 2023 that that's supposed to finish yeah i don't know the the time scale of the mission right on top of my head but it's it's not yeah they're gonna it's yeah, gonna it's be a, a while. short one Right. Yeah. <laughs> As most of these, you know, these NASA missions aren't though. They can't no, be. No, no, they're We're not. Talking about yeah. these these kind of distances involved. Well, if you think about it, they, some some astronomers start their careers on a mission, like let's say New Horizons. Sure. And then you know, New Horizons took nine years just to get to Pluto. Right. So you know, careers are happen in that length of time. So mm-hmm. people really get invested in these missions and it can be devastating when the mission fails or something blows up but you know because people have already by the time the thing starts to launch people have already devoted a decade of their lives to getting that thing on a rocket and so you know it's really high risk endeavor career speaking i think for a lot of these nasa scientists but the payoff is huge that's why they're always so happy whenever they get flybys or they get data or they get stuff from their you know all because they've had just decades of hard work tied up into this. That's why they get so emotional when you, you see them like uh, when rovers land on Mars or right. fly by Pluto, all that in June, going past Jupiter, you know, it's just. Well, and you don't think about that when you're not involved, but yeah, imagine if your entire career, your life's investment of time, it could all be derailed by one thing that was, you know, calculated wrong or a rock that hits your craft in space, you know, or anything, yeah. anything can go wrong. There's so many things that can go wrong and it destroys your life's work. It's a high risk endeavor, you know, no matter, you know, and on so many levels, you know, not just this getting of knowledge and science and, but also as a career path, it can be quite, quite nail biting, I think. Yeah, if you're going to do it, I think I would want to pick one that was really going to be some epic results, you know. I, I don't know that I would be the one saying, I, re- I want to go collect some rocks from the next asteroid. I'm sure that I know that I know. scientifically there'd be so many reasons to do it and there's so much to learn from it. But I would want something if I'm going to be invested with that much risk for that long where it's like, yeah, we got the, we got the highest resolution image of Saturn ever taken or whatever it's going to be. I know. Yeah, I'm like that too. It's like I, I don't I don't begrudge these guys. I get it that it's exciting to them that they right. discovered that that this new that, that Ultima Thule is – shaped like a snowman and it's red right <laughs> okay yeah 
uh, I'm, I'm happy that that's exciting, but it just really, you know, still, it's just been a rock that's been floating around for about, you know, three or 4 billion years. And when I think about it in that perspective, I find that impressive, but the fact that it's red, not so much. So I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they do it and it's certainly worth yeah. doing. It's just my interests lie slightly elsewhere, like in stars and galaxies and the universe right. as a whole. So, yeah, I, w- I would be bored for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> are we there yet are we there yet? <laughs> you know i was like where the heck is but why is pluto so far away i've been really annoyed by this <laughs> yeah. can we go any faster <laughs> right. <laughs> all right well hey do you want to you want to move on to some amateur astronomy news now yeah let's do it let's right. do it this uh last year was uh the, I mean, I don't know that there's been a bigger year for amateur astronomy. Everything is going in the right direction, too, which is really exciting because I think it's becoming more and more accessible for everyone, as, as you've seen as well. I mean, it's um, so things are getting the equipment's getting better very, very rapidly. It's getting less expensive as it's getting better, which is a rare thing in any realm outside of, you know, maybe electronics. Um, but Things are getting less expensive. They're more available. The manufacturing is getting better. They're more consistently good. And um, you're starting to see more people entering the hobby of amateur astronomy because of that. You know, the barrier for entry is is so much uh, less. It's, it's so simple now to get into. And that wasn't the case even just five years ago. You know, and last year made huge, um, huge leaps forward in, in that respect, at least. What do you mean by getting more accessible? Well, if you think about it, so, you know, in the time that you were doing um, a lot of your research, you were probably using CCD cameras. Um, I still use CCD cameras and they are still kind of the standard, the gold standard for uh, astrophotography and for a lot of the science being done. Um, very, very predictable results. A lot of um, a lot of benefits still to CCD cameras and for people doing a lot of uh, binning, that sort of thing. But th- I'd say that last year, 2018, would have been the rise of CMOS. You know, there are a lot more CMOS sensors being sold now than there are CCD, uh, mainly because the cost is so much less for people to get similar results. So they may not be able to get exactly the same results. They may not be able to push their exposures quite as long or to be able to do some of the binning that maybe they'd want to on different systems. Uh, But they are able to get the cameras for a fraction of the price of what they would have been paying otherwise for a similar CCD camera. And that's a big deal. It it really opens the door. I mean, when you're talking the difference of, say, $1,000 compared to maybe $4,000, that's a huge deal. Yeah, it is a lot of, that's a big price difference. So besides the price though, what else is different about a CMOS detector versus a CCD detector? Uh, Well, the big thing is, so what I'd say is making it, um, you know, it's kind of the technology is being driven by the uh, DSLR camera industry. So Canon, Nikon, all of the big players, when they, they chose a route to invest in technology, it was really CCD or CMOS. And Pretty much everyone went CMOS. And so although science has stayed with CCD for the most part, you know, cooled CCDs, we basically freeze these chips um, to eliminate thermal noise buildup in the images. They're doing the same thing with the CMOS detectors, but because all of the investment from the huge players, uh, millions and millions of dollars of investment are going into CMOS, over time, everything is going to go that way because those chips are getting so much better so quickly that 
you're starting to see a lot of the limitations that were there before year by year are just disappearing. And so uh, for a long time, for instance, you had a camera, an 8300 sensor is a Kodak uh, KAF 8300, which was kind of the chip that everyone had at some point. I mean, I've had one, just about everybody here at OPT has used one at some point and they were great. They're great CCD sensors, but they're fairly noisy. Uh, fairly low quantum efficiency, which is just, you know, if 100 photons hit and your quantum efficiency 70, you get to your 70%, you get to keep 70 photons, just basically how much of the light coming in you actually record. And um, what we're finding is these new CMOS chips have massive QE, so huge uh, quantum efficiency numbers, which is great. It means you're keeping more of the light. Um, they are less expensive, and you can get a similar size chip, even if um, some of the chip structure, like the pixels, may be smaller, which we're seeing on a lot of the CMOS chips, um, those types of things. But you're getting something very similar at a fraction of the price. And I think ultimately, that's what People are, they're not looking at it saying like, oh, I want what I've always had. They're saying, I want what I can afford to get in to see if I even enjoy this or if I just want to do this as a hobby, right? So it sounds like with CC, with CMOS chips, then you get, uh, there's, there's a lot of upside that you've got, you've got higher quantum efficiency. They're much more, uh, they're much more affordable than, than a CCD chip is. What kind of cameras would these be in? I mean, are, can you give us maybe a price range of some of the cameras that would be a CMOS detector? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, all the DSLRs that anybody has, so those are CMOS chips. You really don't have to overthink this. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. No. And I, I don't mean you, I mean, really everyone, you know, it's so any camera that you have, including like your cell phone, most of the time, these are going to be CMOS chips. It really is where pretty much everything is going, or it seems like it's going, but you know, the, the biggest thing is, again, the price, they're starting at about $200 for astronomy-centered um, cameras that people are using for planetary imaging, that sort of thing, where you just do super high frame rate stuff and then throw away the bad frames, stack all the good ones, and you can get these really clear, phenomenal pictures of the planets, the moon, um, even the sun through solar telescopes. But at $200, I mean, you're getting a really high quality camera that's very inexpensive for any hobby to get into something at that level. And then, you know, going up to the larger sensors, I mean, like three grand buys you a, a top-notch camera. I mean, people are taking uh, NASA A-pods with cameras that are $1,000 now, which is really, really impressive considering, you know, a lot of the top CCD cameras are still in the, you know, $15,000 range. And and you can get there with CMOS chips. I don't want to make it sound like... Like you can't, um, you can definitely, I mean, there are CMOS chips that, you know, cost you $40,000. Um, <laughs> of course, you, know, you can always you, spend money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just saying that the, the sensors that people are typically buying are much less expensive than what the hobby required before. And it's good that the market has opened up and it's really embracing both sides of it. So you still have people like myself, I still use CCD sensors um, in my observatories and, and in my home systems. But it's just the sensors I'm comfortable with, and I do a lot of binning, and um, I just, I've always just liked my cameras. But um, 
more people than not now are switching to or are getting started with CMOS and it allows for people to spend the same money but try multiple different sensors, different combos on different scopes, camera setups, those types of things and really get a very versatile system. And uh, that's that's part of the hobby, right? Is trying new things. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, since most of my experience has been with CCDs, I have just a couple more questions for you because I, sure. I obviously they're on DSLRs. And one of the things I've noticed with shooting at least video on DSLRs is you can't shoot for longer than, say, 10 minutes because the chip overheats. Uh, and you have to stop and, and let it cool, and then you can take more video. Is there any cooling that goes on in, in astronomy cameras and what's their low light performance for the CMOS chips? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. It's um, so you, they, they're sold both ways. You can get these CMOS sensors and generally the ones that are going to be two or $300 come without cooling. And so the form factor of these cameras is tiny. I mean, you know, half the size of your cell phone, maybe they are really, really small because there's not much to them. It's just the chip and then everything's run off of a computer or, um, you know, a raspberry Pi or something like that. But the same chips will come in a cooled version with just about every manufacturer. So the cost goes up slightly, but then you have uh, a couple stages of cooling. Generally, you have passive cooling and then you have active cooling where, you know, it divides the, or basically it pulls the heat off of the sensor that's building up and pushes it out the back of the camera. And so you can get these things down 20 degrees or 30 degrees even. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like if you're doing long exposures, you're going running electricity through that, you're going to heat up the sensor and that's going to show as noise, which can you know, it can really inhibit research or even just pretty pictures. They don't look pretty when they're covered with speckles of noise and being able to freeze them like that, that goes away. And so you can do very, very long exposures. And they're cooled. You say they, it pulls the heat away from the chip. Is it done that with a thermoelectric cooler, a little? It like is. A, okay. So it, yep. these are elements, folks. Uh, if you know what those are, sometimes if you ever buy a 12 volt car operated ice chest <laughs> one of the ways they work on the same principle where once they, they apply a current to a to a thermoelectric device where one side gets really hot one side gets really cold and it and you can pull using using heat sinks and all kinds of stuff you can you can pull the heat away from something that you want to cool down and those tend to be uh really effective to, on the order of like what dustin said about 20 degrees different you can actually cool them down quite a bit and so what would be, is there like a maximum exposure time for a CMOS camera or does it just matter? You know, I've, I've never really pushed them. I can tell you this. So with my CCDs, I do really long exposures. It's not uncommon at all for me to run a full hour on each exposure. Um, you know, so the sensor is just sitting there getting cooled down and the shutter is wide open for an hour at a time and it's fine. I'm not getting tons of buildup of noise or anything like that. Well, that's a long time. Um, it is a long time, absolutely, but it allows me to get so much signal that, you know, a lot of those photos I post, that's that's how I'm getting that signal. It's just really long exposures and a lot of them. You know, one of the recent shots I did was 90 hours of exposure on one target, um, which is, you know, all night it's running while I'm sleeping. So it's not like I'm sitting there staring at the computer screen for 90 hours, um, <laughs> as heroic as that would be. Um, uh, see, you, you know, could have sounded really <laughs> heroic there. You know, you right. could say, I, right. I'm at the eyepiece. I'm guiding for 90 exactly. hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, yeah, with the CMOS chips, what I'm finding that people that are very successful with them are doing is a lot of re- a lot more very short exposures. So generally two, three minutes at a time, but just a ton of exposures. So they might be doing where I might do 12 exposures. They might do 100 and combine all of those exposures, but they're not taxing the sensor so much at any one time that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense and there's no it, it's just the inverse i mean there's no real loss no matter which way you do it because when you whether you're doing uh 12 one hour exposures or a hundred you know two minute exposures and you're adding them all together the way in which they're combined you're it's really interesting folks because the way it works is you can add all these images up and the signals of, and all of that will add as the number of images you've got, right? So if you have a, a, a hundred one second images and you add them all together, it's the same signal as you would get with a, with a hundred second exposure. Uh, but if, you, but the noise only adds as the square root of the number. So the signal builds up quickly. The noise tapers off at, after you've added up a certain number of pictures. And so, but either way is good. It doesn't matter if you do 10 one hour exposures or a hundred and 50, you know, one minute exposure, however you do it, you know, the, the combinations are more or less the same. Although, you know, registering all those images might be interesting, but there might be errors in that. But yeah, do you agree that there isn't really any difference? So what I've seen, I, I have not seen a big difference and I've seen, so I, the first time it ever caught my attention was I saw that somebody got a NASA APOD taking uh, one minute exposures and just a ton of, them. I think it was like two or 300 exposures, yeah. <laughs> but, and it just blew my mind that those are one minute exposures so that th- there's a huge benefit there, which is one, if something goes wrong, you know, you get some tracking error or whatever. Okay. You lost a minute. Something goes wrong for me at any time within an hour. You know, a plane flies through, satellite goes through, a cloud drifts through. I lost an entire hour. You know, I lost a twelfth of my image. But somebody that's got minute exposures, your chances of getting good ones are so much greater. Um, So there's a real benefit there. I've talked to a lot of people about what you're bringing up about, uh, you know, the cumulative data being the same. And I've heard both sides of it. I've heard a lot of people say exactly what you're saying. And then I've heard a lot of very experienced imagers saying, no, it's more like you would have to do 50% more to get the same data. So if you did, you know, let's say an hour of a single hour exposure, you would have to do an hour and a half to get the same data if you were doing like one minute exposures. Oh, okay. um, you know, I honestly don't know the truth there. I know that it's going to be very, very close. And at that point, it's going to come down to processing ability either way. So I don't know that it that it honestly matters that much because you can always, again, you're investing a minute. Okay, so it's not exactly where you want it. Put in a couple more minutes. It's not a huge investment. So I think that there's a real benefit to that. And just the satellites and planes alone mean you're throwing away a lot less exposures. Yeah. And the whole thing that makes this possible, in my opinion, is the automatic registering software that you can get that that just puts them all together for you. You don't have to think, oh, my God, I've got to put together manually 100 two-second That would be a nightmare. Yeah. That would be a nightmare. I mean, you, you literally, at this point, you just select, drag all of them over at once and just hit run. 
Yep. And that's it. There's nothing to do. So yeah, I agree. Without that, nobody would even be messing with these short exposures. <laughs> then we'd all you be doing one 12 hour exposure is what we'd <laughs> exactly. be doing. <laughs> exactly. You'd have planes everywhere. Nobody would care. That's right. Oh, well, that's just another like, satellite trail. Who cares? <laughs> Don't look at <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, um, it's a really good thing and it, it really opens the door for so many people to get involved. And I, I think it's a great hobby for people to be involved in. I mean, it's, it's absolutely changed my life and photography for people that love photography. I mean, it's the most difficult type of photography you're going to do arguably. And I mean, you're shooting into places where there's very little light and trying to gather it for an extended period of time while the earth is spinning. So it's, it's, there's a lot to it. And I think that challenge is what draws so many people to the hobby and, um, you know, and then you've got a lot of options. There's a lot to learn. And that's another thing that I think that's why it attracts so many. Everybody I talk to that's in the hobby is always so intelligent. And I think that's why it attracts intelligent people is there's so much to learn. There's so much to do. There's, there's so many ways to get better. And because it's relatively young, there are still so many ways to innovate. And there aren't many hobbies where you can say all of those things at the same time. Okay, Dustin. Well, the, I I did not know the, a lot of this about CMOS detectors. Like I said, I came from the CCD world, and I'm being with my with my collaboration with you now. I'm hoping to get some more access to some of these kinds of detectors. I mean, I have a DSLR, but I have some of the astronomical uh, cameras. Can you give specific recommendations? Let's say that there's people listening to this podcast who want to get into it don't want to spend a lot of money, what would be your recommendation for a, a beginner camera as well as some of that tracking software that makes it easy to put together? Sure. Yeah. So the tracking software, there are, there are a ton of different software um, packages that will do it. The one that we see move the most anymore is called the StellarMate. It, uh, it's its own little computer. So it's a device that's, again, I think it's because of the price that drives the sales that way. But um, it's about 150 160 bucks. But that includes the computer and all of the software to run anything you ever buy. So, I mean, all the way up to an observatory dome, this thing will run. And it can fully automate your system so you can run while you're sleeping. It will do guiding. I mean, it, it does everything. And again, it's, you know, 160 bucks. So that software is all built in. It comes preloaded on the device. So that one is selling right now more than anything else. But there are a lot of complete packages that will do things professionally. I mean, packages like Prism or Maxim DL. I mean, the Sky X is one that you see used in, in observatories around the world. And so you can really go as far with it as you want. And some of these can be a little, you know, a little more expensive up to, you know, about $1,000. But depending on what, what it is you're looking to do, there are a ton of options available. Um, as far as the camera options on the CMOS side, all of the major players at this point have started producing CMOS sensors. Um, you know, ZWO is one that came in in a big way and really pushed that. They really drove innovation in that market. Um, so I should probably mention them first just because I think there's there's credit due there. Um, they have really taken off and provided a great product 
for the amateur community at a price point that I think that people really can get in confidently that it's not something that's going to be overly expensive or is too big a risk to just try it and see if they enjoy it. And from there, I think a lot of companies have have done a great job of doing the same with their brands. I mean, QHY is another one. They've they've made some of the most innovative products out there, including, you know, a polar alignment CMOS sensor that they call the Pole Master that goes on the front of your mount that will polar align your mount for you. You know, and so there's just a lot of innovation coming out of the community with some of these brands. And then, like I said, all of the major brands, you got FLI and SBIG and Starlight Express. There's there's too many to name. They're all producing really high quality CMOS chips now or CMOS cameras that uh, allow people to get started with really whichever brand you you prefer. Man, it's you're right. It's in, I always say in my hangouts and my videos that we live in the golden age of astronomy. And I usually say that from the professional uh, standpoint, but in, in amateur astronomy, the same thing is true. I mean, I, I, you know, this really is a golden age where, you, you, you know, you can get involved in this hobby for not so much money and do amazing, get amazing results as a result, uh, you know, right. a, because of your efforts. So, right. That's Absolutely. Really, that's really cool. You know, and there's there's another side to that with CMOS, which is color cameras. Do you use color when you do? I mean, you probably used a lot of monochrome stuff, right? Well, yeah, but you also use filters. I mean, what you have to do is you have to have a filter wheel, which can be quite expensive. And you those are based on whatever wavelengths you want to look at. And then, of course, they're more expensive depending on the bandpass they have. So, you know, because a CCD is just a collector of photons, it you know, whatever you get out of it is going to be a grayscale of the amount of photons it got, right? And so um, to get, say, uh, uh, the green in the Orion Nebula, you need to put a green filter in. If you want to get some of the red from the Orion Nebula, you put a red filter in. And then you take all of your exposures in those filters, you add each one up individually in each filter segment, and then you combine the filters which is a lot of work. So that's generally how you do it in CCD work. Yeah. And that's the same thing I do. So I shoot all monochrome chips for my images. And I get that question probably every other day from people on Instagram and Facebook just asking, are these real colors? And the answer is yes, probably more real than they would be if I shot with a, a sensor that was a color camera like your DSLR. Because the DSLR has to guess. Whereas what you're saying right now, Tony, is like with the monochrome chip, the only job of the sensor is to say light hit here. Yep. That's it. And turn it into and an so electron. If you put, yep. Exactly. Exactly. And so if you put a red filter over the whole thing, it's going to capture light. It's only going to capture the red light coming through, and it's going to capture as much of it as possible everywhere that that red light is hitting. And same thing with green and blue. And so then you stack all three of those on top of each other, and you get a true color image. The difference with a color camera is that you're relying on something called a Bayer matrix, which is a matrix of filters that goes over the whole sensor, pixel by pixel, and it repeats a pattern, generally RGGB, so red, green, green, blue. And if red light hits the red filter, it passes through and it registers, and then you say, okay, red light hit here. But if red hits the green, green, or blue, so any of the other 75% of each square, you're not collecting that light. And so the sensor has to, after the fact, guess at 
where was the light actually red? You know, interpolate. This this is where it was red. This is where it was blue. And it's really, there's a little more guessing that goes on. So you're getting a color image, but the truth is you're probably getting a more realistic true color image when you shoot red, green, and blue filters over a monochrome chip than you are an actual color chip. Why are there two greens? Uh, well, if you think about like shooting terrestrially for like Canon and Nikon, that's what most of the chips are produced for is typical photography, right? Like general photography. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to get green more than you are any other color. And I think our, our eyes, because isn't the sun is green shifted, correct? Well, so aren't our eyes most sensitive to green? Yeah, that's the center of our, I think our wavelength response to our eyes. Yeah, I think it's in the green. Right. And so if, um, if that's the case, then it makes sense to have a lot of, you know, to have most, if you have to have a color where most of your pixels are going to be covered in it, it makes sense to have it green. You go out and you shoot in the yard, right? It's going to make a ton of sense. But when you're shooting into space, the color you see the least of is green. You're going to see more red than anything else because of, you know, hydrogen data uh, or hydrogen in general. And then you see a lot of blue in space as well but you don't typically see a lot of targets that are mostly green. And so it doesn't really benefit you to have half of your pixels covered in green filters. But you're still saying that you get you can still get some very nice images from your telescope, even though that's not necessarily the case as far as the colors that are up there. Absolutely. It's just, and I don't, I don't want to make this confusing uh, for people that are just getting into it, but if you just think about what we were just talking about, right? Quantum efficiency and, and how much of the light you can keep that's actually hitting. So you have a couple of limitations. You have the sensor's limitation, which is going to be the, the QE, the quantum efficiency. But then you also, so on a monochrome chip, that's the extent of it is, okay, um, the quantum efficiency, I know that number. I know that I get to keep roughly, say, 50% or 70% or whatever. Well, your color sensor is going to have a QE number as well, but then you're also going to lose light because it's hitting the wrong filter. Or, you know, if you say, okay, I, I'm shooting a target that is almost exclusively red, which like say the North American nebula, that is almost entirely red. No matter if you shoot it monochrome or color, it's going to come out red. But on your chip, only 25% of your pixels are covered in red filters. So sure, you have a QE limitation, but now you also have a pixel filtration limitation. Does that make sense? I mean, you're losing 75% of your data off the top because of your Bayer matrix. So that would be that would probably translate into longer exposure times for a given object, depending on what it is you're looking at, whether exactly whether it's an, a, a, a galaxy or a nebula or whatever. But still that's not such a limitation because you just take longer exposures or you take, you know, more of them and add them up. I mean, that's exactly because right. all of this is automated. This is not, it's, it's, it's amazing that I'm sitting here saying, we'll just take more images because back in the day, that was a real big deal. You had to manually add all those up. Nowadays, it's just, you know, like, like Dustin says, he takes his images while he sleeps. So it's that automated now. And that's, and that's even with very modest equipment, you get that kind of, yeah, that full automation is like $160 with, you know, like I was saying, the Stellar Mate. I mean, that that back in the day would have been, you know, $50,000 oh, to yeah. set something like that up. And and now it's it's something that comes preloaded, ready to do it. Just connect your equipment and go. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the difference is it's exactly like you're saying. If you want to shoot in color, shoot in color. We actually 
So one of the, the biggest things for us last year, and I think one of the biggest things probably for the industry last year, um, was a filter that we put out called the triad filter. And this really kind of helped the resurgence of color cameras, um, that, that we've seen. I mean, there's been a huge, huge interest in color cameras again, which they had pretty much died, uh, for us. We, we found, I mean, it had to be 15 of every 16 sensors that were sold were monochrome. And now it's, it's definitely swinging back the other way because people like shooting in color and seeing a color image, but you know, your, your images are never quite as sharp or the signal's not quite as great because you had limitations before where, um, say, you know, you want to shoot in hydrogen alpha so you can limit everything. This is called narrowband imaging. But let's say, and that's what that's what most of my imaging is, it's narrowband, but you, you want to shoot through street lamps. You don't want to wait until the moon is gone. You know, the moon's like a big street lamp in the sky, yeah, it is. lighting everything up. It is tonight, too. You know, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't want to wait until that's gone, but you can't shoot that with a color camera because it's going to just show up as a white image. It's going to collect all that light pollution, and you're not going to get much signal on your target. So what you do, the trick is you shoot narrowband. You say, okay, I know that the Pelican Nebula is putting off a lot of hydrogen. This is emission, an emission nebula. And so it's putting off all this hydrogen. You can use a hydrogen filter, very, very narrow, say like three nanometers, and shoot that no matter where you are. I mean, I shot from Times Square with one. I shoot from LA regularly, San Diego. Um, we shoot from the parking lot, literally right past street lamps all the time. And because those aren't putting off a lot of light in that wavelength, you're getting the light coming from space in that wavelength, and you're seeing a ton of signal no matter where you are. And you can do the same thing with oxygen and sulfur and combine those. But what happened last year, 2018, was we found a way, and this took about six months to develop. It was it was a long, tedious process. But we found a way to make one filter that had all three, actually four bands now, where you're getting hydrogen alpha, hydrogen beta, oxygen three, and sulfur, all um, on the same filter, all at very, very narrow tolerances. So you can put this in front of a color camera and while you'll have to do longer exposures because you're limiting the light coming in, when you get your exposure, you see the nebulae in color right as they show up on the back of your camera like anything else you would have taken. So that's a huge difference because it's like you said, when you're shooting monochrome, no matter what color you shoot, you see it in gray until you process it. Mm -hmm. But when you're shooting a color camera, I mean, I can take a color DSLR to Times Square, put this filter in front of it, shoot out into space and show somebody, you know, the Pelican Nebula right there pop up on the back of the camera in color. And so the experience is entirely different. And if you're in dark skies, I mean, you can even put it on live view, run video and see with the ISO cranked up. I mean, see these things in color in real time. And I don't know that that's ever been done, you know, until now. And so those, those filters have completely changed the game for color imaging and, um, they are making, I mean, making there be a lot more, you know, interest in color imaging again, because even though you're not going to get the same, you know, data that you would with a monochrome chip, there's a real benefit to the simplicity of not having to have a filter wheel or any of the software, any of that. I mean, just press the button and see the image in color. Yeah. Uh, And you developed this last year. 
we the did. Triad yeah, yeah, it was actually it was a staff idea, and we just we went with it, and nobody knew if it was possible or not. And like, I mean, there was one filter manufacturer in the world that said they could do it, and even them, it. I mean, they messed up a ton of them trying to get it done, and finally they nailed it. And we were there, like, we can do this. Let's do it. Let's run with it. And so, yeah, the filter just got awarded, and it's been uh, it's been. We're finally getting caught up. I mean, we were. What do you mean? It's so been backed up with. Uh, it got uh, hot product of the year. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's just it's it's awesome. I mean, the experience. I'll definitely send you one out there to play with. They are so much fun, and being able to see stuff in real time in color is just it's very very unique. And being able to do it from cities because again, the street lamps aren't a big deal. Okay, I don't I don't want to get too in depth on this, but I am an optics nerd. So let me just ask this one question. Did you do it with coatings or with, uh, how did you get these three separate band passes all on the same piece of optical glass? Was it the coatings? Yes. So the, it is the coatings, ah, okay. but as you can imagine, getting the coatings that fine, um, they become very delicate. And so they're, I mean, anything, and we were very strict with the manufacturer about how narrow it had to be. I mean, people have done what they call light pollution filters before. Mm-hmm. I've seen them. And these are, yeah. And so these, these work, but they're, it's, it's really a completely different thing. I mean, what we're doing is a light pollution filter in true narrow band fashion where light pollution just kind of becomes a non-issue for the most part. Light pollution filters will give you a little more contrast in images that generally would be would not be able to work at all in light polluted areas. You know, but there's they're two entirely different things. Yeah. And so light pollution filters wouldn't have been hard to produce because they're very broad as far as the band passes go. But when you're talking about like say 3 nanometers, I mean that's what Hubble has on it. Yeah. That's the quality we're talking about. Hubble is shooting three nanometers, and that's what's on our filter. And that bandpass is important because it gets you, as, as Justin said, the contrast you need at those wavelengths where whatever it is you're looking at is shining the brightest. And so, yeah, are are they very expensive? How? Uh, and you get, you said you're getting caught up on orders. Apparently, there must have been some demand for them, <laughs> some pent up demand. Yeah. Well, and it was a, it was a process, you know, we didn't know because they are, they are more expensive than like a typical light pollution filter. Um, because you know, those kind of coatings in general are just very expensive to produce. Mm -hmm. But, um, if you buy, like, say just a, if you go buy a, uh, like a hydrogen alpha filter, then the S2 and then the O3 at three nanometers, that might be, and I'm, I'm making this up. I don't have them all memorized, but let's say it's $300 a piece right for um the inch and a quarter size and i I don't know if that's right or not but it's probably relatively close then the um the triad would have all three of those built in but instead of being 900 to get all three you're paying 375 which is the price of the triad filter at inch and a quarter so um you know it's still not an inexpensive filter but it saves you a ton of money and you can use it on a monochrome or uh, a lot of people are using it on their monochrome cameras for their luminance, which makes a ton of sense. And I hadn't even thought about it. Our customers actually came up with that, which I thought was a brilliant idea. Um, they're using it as a luminance filter on their monochrome chips and then as their color light pollution filter on all of their color cameras. What's a luminance filter? A luminance filter is basically the filter that, so you have red, green, and blue, right, which limit the light coming in, and then your luminance filter lets all three channels come in at once, 
And then you apply that after the fact to increase the signal. So you got red, green, and blue to get your color data and then luminance to get your full res, uh, how much light came through data. It just brightens up everything and makes the image punchy. Oh, okay. But when, when you do that with, um, with a triad filter, obviously, like you were just mentioning, the signal goes way up. And so you're just getting even more detail and contrast by applying that as your luminance channel. That's awesome. Okay. Well, we need to, uh, we need to definitely look at that more. And I can tell you that that's not even a bad price because if by the time you consider buying, sometimes you've got to buy six, eight filters for your filter wheel on a CCD, you're looking easily oh, yeah. at a thousand bucks. So this is not expensive in my opinion for what it does, uh, compared to what you would get from other more expensive, you know, filter wheels, even the filter wheels themselves are, are expensive. So yeah, that's really that's really a, an amazing amazing sounding product. Is there any other uh, things that you want to mention for 2018 that was cool in the industry? Uh, yeah, 2018. I mean, we uh, you know I think the the most exciting things were probably. Um, you know, space fab, you know, we, we work directly with uh, them yes. <laughs> and, um, we did a podcast and on so, them. yeah, I still, the, the fact that, you know, we're, we're putting up a satellite. And so I really, like, I can't even talk about this stuff without still like getting goosebumps, but yeah, I mean, we're putting up a satellite with them. That is a, a space telescope controlled by consumers. You can log in and control a space telescope yourself. That is, I mean, that was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And, we, and obviously it continues into this year, just like our other projects. We have um, the city imaging that we started last year with Times Square, and we're continuing that. So we plan to be in, in many, many countries this year, actually. We're recording a documentary that that is um, part of. And so our documentary actually... Uh, Stephen Swancote out of New York will be here in a week to start the documentary filming here on site at OPT. And we're going all over the place with him. Um, but yeah, city imaging is part of that, you know, recording or, or showing that process of showing people basically a star party downtown in major cities, um, kind of impromptu. But and uh, I, I have a feeling the triad filter is going to pro uh, feature prominently in that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it'll, it'll be with us. It'll be with us for sure. Um, and then, you know, we've got the observatory project, which is we're building observatories around the world. And we had uh, six of them go up last year. We've got uh, several more planned for this coming year. And those are just to give away time to the public to um, enjoy space, to learn how to to uh, control telescopes and really to give access to the universe to people that otherwise, you know, would not have it or would not think to have it. And the kind of stuff that's happening with them, like the virtual star parties, I mean, it's like 800,000 people saw that. And I mean, it's just like, that is the coolest thing is to be able to open people's eyes to the universe around them um, with some of the technology that's available now. And so we're, we're really, uh, excited about that project and just keeping it expanding. Ultimately, we want to have 62 observatories around the world that are available all the time for schools or for just people that want to use them. And, um, we're constantly working on that. So a lot of huge projects and, uh, 2018 got all of that started and 2019 is the continuation and the growth of those. Yeah. And so just to close out our podcast a little bit, running out of time here, let's talk a little bit about some of the amateur astronomy events that are coming up in 2019 that you might want to know about. Now, 
almost right away <laughs> this Sunday, uh, there's going to be a partial solar eclipse in of course, you got to be in Russia or China or in Japan and that area to see it, but it will be a partial solar eclipse. Uh, but later this month, there is a going to be a total lunar eclipse. They're calling it a super blood moon. Um, again, all it is is when the moon is at its is what is at its closest point to the uh, to the Earth at perigee, and it looks about oh twenty percent or. 13% bigger or something like that uh, because it's closer to us. And so they call it a supermoon. And when you have a lunar eclipse on top of that, during that period, it turns red because that's what lunar eclipses do. And so they call it a super blood moon. So that's coming up on the 21st and it's going to 21st of January. And that's going to be really cool. We'll be able to see it on the I think the Eastern Coast time is going to be around uh, 10, 1030 uh, Eastern time, which would be early evening for the for the Pacific Coast, around 730 or so. So it's going to be an interesting time, and uh, that's coming right up. And then in June, or no, I'm sorry, July, there's going to be a total solar eclipse uh, that's going to be visible in South America. So if you're in Chile or Argentina, uh, in various places down in Brazil or Uruguay, you could, you could see a total solar eclipse uh, as well. So those are some of the big events coming up, but there's always stuff going on in the night sky throughout the year. Uh, uh, meteor showers, there's a meteor shower that's peaking tonight as we record this. We're recording this on January 3rd, and there's a the, the, the quadrinids are peaking this evening. So And that's easy. You don't need any equipment to view those. You just go outside, grab yourself a chair, maybe a, a beverage of choice, and just look up and enjoy the streaks across the sky. So that's easy to do. So lots of things going up, coming up in 2019 as well. Yeah. And there's going to be just about every week we're doing the virtual star parties where uh, you can go on and and just sit in and watch the observatories run. You can uh, communicate with, with us while we run them. If you there's something you want to see, watch the scope move to it. And then there will be an image of it live as the scope takes the picture of Andromeda or M51 or whatever it is you want to see. And so we do those all the time. And those are uh, on YouTube and Twitch with Fraser Kane. I know Fraser has a, a huge YouTube following and I know that uh, he plans on doing more there with us. But um, we post the same thing on Gibson Picks on Instagram and on the OPT pages. So there are a lot of ways to find it, but that's one that's been growing very quickly too for people that just want to, you know, casually see some of this stuff without having a huge investment in time or a trip around the world. That's something you can see from home anytime. So you do that. Is there a day of the week that you choose uh, for these? Is there a specific time? We're still nailing down which days. We're trying to make it consistent. Um, but, you know, at first it was on Wednesdays, but we're still nailing it down. But again, I mean, all the details are posted from OPT or I post them on my personal Gibson pics on Instagram as well. So uh, it's it's pretty easy to find. And when we do them, there's always a big crowd. I mean, last time we did it, there were 8,000 people logged in live at any given time, all communicating and just watching the show. So it's it's really a pretty fun community. So this is a live stream that's available on Twitch and Fraser Kane's YouTube channel, and uh, as well as on your Instagram feed. Right, exactly. Cool. Awesome. All right. Yeah, so just follow that, guys. And they are amazing. I've, I've sat in on a couple of them. I may photobomb a couple, too. I may even be able to help on a couple of them in, in, in the coming in the coming year. So, uh, yeah, this is, it, it's an amazing. And this is something that 
is new, right? This is something that, that OPT's put together to make space more accessible to all of us, whether or not we own any equipment. So it's something, it's a resource that I think, uh, especially if you're just starting out, you want to check out because it's, you learn a lot during these streams. You really do. Yeah, it's exciting time. I mean, 2018 was a big year, and I think 2019 is going to be bigger. So these these really are, as you call them, the golden, what the golden age of astronomy. Yeah, again, the golden age of amateur astronomy as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, it is. Well, cool. All right, Dustin. Well, thank you. This is a this has been a great uh, great podcast. We will be we will be back again next week with some guests. But every once in a while, Justin and I like to just chat. We like to just get together talk just nerd out on space stuff and talk about astro amateur astronomy and let you guys know what's new we'll keep doing this throughout the year to keep you uh keep you posted on all kind of cool stuff so okay well that's it for this episode everybody i want to thank everybody for listening and as always keep looking up space junk was produced by opt telescopes in carlsbad california in partnership with deep astronomy please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com